Hello and welcome again to another edition of Nutshell, where we feature the best business stories of the week. It's been quite a week in politics, and as much as we want to ignore the shenanigans of the politician, the antics do affect our markets and policies. In Hong Kong, Chief Executive Carrie Lam suspended the extradition bill that led to the wave of protests. And in Britain, MPs have used every trick in their ancient democratic arsenal to prevent new Prime Minister Boris Johnson from crashing out of the EU without a deal. In our own backyard, albeit with the most beautiful table mountain in the background, things have not been going swimmingly either, as President Cyril Ramaphosa was set to showcase his country ahead of the pack of African countries who arrived for the World Economic Forum in Africa, xenophobic attacks broke out in Gauteng, prompting the leaders of the DRC, Malawi and Rwanda to withdraw from the event. And in the tradition of the World Economic Forum, that is often followed by protesters, activists against femicide in South Africa decided this was the best chance that they had to highlight the issue of women and violence in South Africa. Alec Hogg from Biz News was not deterred by a couple of water cannons and empty seats, and he kept his eye on the issues of business and investment. He took the opportunity to pose questions from the Biz News community to business leaders at the forum. Dr. Martin Davies of Deloitte said the protests outside the forum was an indication of people being tired of the rhetoric of aspiration. People wanted to see action. We've moved from structural decline to arguably drift. South Africans want direction. They want leadership, but leadership in a good way. Ethical, certain, confident, clear. And ultimately, people want to live in a fair society. Uh, whether you are in, in a company, an organization, whether you're in a country, people want fairness. And, and I think uh, the leadership's, uh, leadership in, in SA needs to treat people fairly. Uh, the, the challenge is in, in today's age of, 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 of uh, populism, seeking to accommodate majorities. Uh, I think the UK situation right now, uh, and I think this majoritarian approach at times prevents pragmatic leadership from acting as it should, or leadership acting pragmatically. Um, we need more decisiveness. We need some, some uh, we need leadership. And um, I think that the, the frustrations, you've seen it in Argentina, you've seen many countries across the world, right, the Western countries, we see it in Hong Kong, is you need to have decisive leadership and people need to be a, get a sense that they're living in a society where they are treated equitably and fairly. Miles Free wrote us this question. He says that investment in education has the highest return at preschool level, yet we as a South African country, under the Zuma administration, invested plenty into tertiary education. Well, I think, uh, just to build on that, is the ultimate lead indicator of a progression of a society in a country is how it educates its young people. That's a story of, of uh, the successful so-called what's been called breakout nations, particularly the Asian ones. It's not so much the capital direction as it is of a quantum of the money that's directed towards education. It's the, the quality of the management thereof. And that's a disconnect in South Africa where you have, it's not so much the, the, the unwillingness of the, uh, the political will to spend is there. However, there's the, the challenge of many frontier countries, including South Africa increasingly, is a general management failure. 
of how to manage money effectively. Maximum bang for your buck, put quite simply. So I think it's uh, in South Africa's case we often get confused because our in Africa's case our, our challenges are so are so many across a very wide spectrum of development requirements. We can be talking about fourth industrial revolution, which is clearly the top of the economy. At the same time, we're talking basic math literacy uh, for, 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 for primary school kids. Where do you start? Well, the fact of the matter is we have to do everything at the same time. Uh, and I think that that is really uh, stretching our resources, our, our relatively thin resources, even thinner. But, but shouldn't there be more focus, that's Miles's view, uh, on the under-14s, in other words, not to 14? Yeah, I, I agree, but you know, I don't think there's, there's priority here. Everyone needs to be, everyone needs to provide the, to receive the best education you possibly can. You, need, you can't you, do that. You need kids to come out of school to be globally competitive mm -hmm. to varying extents. Uh, uh, you know, from, from from English language, multiple languages, math, science, obviously. Uh, but the biggest challenge we have here is, you know, if you're not getting it in the first few years, you ain't probably ever going to get it, mm -hmm. with very few exceptions. You can't put something in later. So it's um, the, 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 the sponge that is young people's children's minds is not a sponge forever, I'm afraid. So you'd, you'd go with him? You'd say, yeah, it's a good place to be putting the money at the, at the little least? I don't think it's about the money. I think it's about the mindset and the commitment and the, 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 the commitment again, the commitment of educators to provide education in, in, a, in a decent professional manner. It's not a money issue in this country. It's a management issue. Amos Moledi wants to know what impact will the national health insurance NHI in South Africa have on the economy? You know, unlike Brazil, arguably, we should not be making similar mistakes where the country puts in social welfare systems before it can afford it. And that, I'm afraid, is arguably the situation of NHI. So can we have, can I use an analogy, Rolls-Royce systems in an economy that, 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 that can't afford it. Um, that's reality. It's, it's not what I personally want. But, you know, we, um, had we been growing at a 5% pace GDP with some real trickle-down into the economy and middle class uh, creating a more embedded crisis-resistant middle class in South Africa, um, that would have solved a lot of our problems. And we wouldn't be in the state of, of uh, we have to make sacrifices about what policies we want to push through and what services we want to provide. And the question that most people wanted answered is the viability of Finance Minister Tito Mbuweni's turnaround plan. APSA's Jeff Gable says it is not really new. In a very contested terrain, we have sort of a document now that highlights a number of interventions that for the most part have been discussed in previous forms all the way going back, some of them to the new growth path and the National Development Plan. So in that sense, it's not new. But into the current environment, where there is so much contestation, not just around state capture and others, but real ideological contestation about how to get this economy growing, it's fascinating to see National Treasury and uh, Minister Mubweni come out with something they say we should be discussing. What are the chances of it being taken seriously at Cabinet? It's tricky, right? Again, we have these big ideological splits that take place. And, and almost by its very nature, something sort of referenced by Treasury will almost certainly then be opposed by elements of the left and others. So whether this is sort of seen as uh, an actionable document that brings with it the correct political support for implementation, 
or whether this is, as it says on the tin, this is a discussion document, right? This is what we as Treasury, and the way that we think about the economy and its linkages, this is what we think should work. Not all of it, in fact, much of it isn't even under the purview of Treasury, but this is what we think we should be discussing. Open the discussion up. So what's in there that will change South Africa? What in legislation should be the balance between sort of labor and business? How do we think as South Africans, how do we think about the balance between government and the private sector? Where do we think there's a room for regulation to open up opportunities or for regulation to close off loopholes? It's all of those details away from the headlines of this 70-odd page document that is probably where things are tricky when you get to sort of the technocratic level. But when you get to the pure politics of it, we're right back into the ideological discussions. Should we have an economy that's led by sort of government? Should we have an economy that's led by business? What are the lessons to take from the last half decade where we've been growing very slowly? And what are the right lessons to apply going forward? The National Treasury's document gives us one look at that, but there'll be others as well. So you've read the whole thing? I think a number of us have, but it's, I mean, it's, it's a lot shorter than the National Development Plan was. <laughs> is, it, is it more um, more likely to be implemented than the National Development Plan wasn't? Well, there are many elements within the National Development Plan that we see having come to fruition around us. Now, we always think about the National Development Plan, but we risk thinking about the Development Plan in terms of its discussion around sort of uh, business versus labor, around privatization, around those issues that were always going to be very politically contested. But whether you sit here in Cape Town or in Pretoria or in Joburg or others, you see sort of many parts of the National Development Plan in action. Think about the rolling out of uh, transit systems, moving people onto buses, thinking about rail. In many parts of uh, urban South Africa, the urban planning, the thoughts about sort of uh, spatial developments, the densification in our major areas, that hasn't happened by chance. All of those things are part and parcel of the National Development Plan. So it's absolutely true that some of the National Development Plan was always going to be heavily contested, but other bits slip in here and there and we make progress. And I suspect the exact same thing will happen with this National Treasury discussion document. There are parts of this that are already well progressed. There are parts of this discussion that aren't necessarily, uh, won't necessarily be the focus of political contestation. And they'll get done, but we'll tend to focus on those things that are more excitable, where the contestation is greater. Mm. So for those people who haven't read the 70-odd pages of Tito's plan or the the plan as it has been compiled by Treasury. What are the he what are the headlines for you? Uh, listen, to my side, it was sort of those five areas of broad intervention. So that was around sort of uh, you know, improving sort of the network economy, which is very much around things like infrastructure, that's transport and telecoms and others. It was around barriers to entry, and that's where we're thinking about sort of red tape, and we're thinking about uh, competition policy and others. How do we make it easier for small and medium and large business to be able to get up and running and generate jobs in South Africa? It was about this concept concept of labor-intensive growth. Not all economic growth is equal, not so much in rands and cents, but how many jobs you generate. As South Africa, we're rightly proud 
of the huge investments we've had in the auto sector, for example, but we must also recognize that each of those jobs eats up a huge amount of capital, whereas we haven't spent enough time focusing on things like agriculture, where we generate lots of jobs, often unsexy jobs, but we generate lots of jobs for South Africans. A very sexy job in agriculture would be cannabis, a big opportunity. Canada knows, America knows. <laughs> Potentially it might be. Potentially it might be. Whether South Africa wants to position itself as the cannabis hub for the uh, African continental future, I'm not sure about that. But it's an interesting idea. The general notion here is making the best use of the resources that we have. So we know that South Africa is a water-scarce country. We've gone through two periods of extreme drought in the last handful of years. But at the same time, we know that there's lots of land that's not being used in the right way, with the right techniques, with the right use of labor in order to take advantage of the people that we have today and to provide opportunities for those not living in cities but in rural areas. And so that's part of the focus around this job-intensive growth. In fact, that space is getting smaller and smaller. One of the discussion points at the World Economic Forum was how to harness digital technology to boost growth in Africa. Concern was expressed that many jobs would be lost due to automation or robots. Nick Benedel, the founder and former dean of the Gordon Institute of Business, said it would present challenges, but there will be upsides as well. I mean, at the one end, at the top end, uh, I've just been reading some very interesting research about chess and, you know, IBM Kasparov being beaten by a machine. And so they've run hybrid contests now where chess players can use computers to play and the computers are outperformed by the human thought in the sense that the pattern of the game is a human thing that the technology... The technology can do tactics, but it can't do the kind of strategic t- uh, pattern thinking that humans can. We're much faster. So the broader question is we're a society with low skills. Uh, most of our people will really struggle in the fourth industrial revolution. We do see there's upside. There are many platform companies that have been established here already, the Ubers and so on, who are creating thousands and thousands of jobs. The other thing is it's going to impact on the existing second and third industrial revolution uh, industries such as agriculture and so on, manufacturing. And so there'll be an upgrade there as we ingest and use these technologies. We just don't know where the jobs are going to come from. Though. Well, we've done some research on this and, and there are areas where we can see this. Globally traded services. There are 3,000 people who've started a, a, to now teach Chinese online English in South Africa. There are these kinds of opportunities. 3,000? 3,000 kids, yeah, graduates. They've been taken and trained, and they, they're doing an amazing job. And we're finding that it's not always related to formal education, but sometimes it's just an aptitude. So the story you were just hearing was about two sales girls in the retail outfit that tested at Arambi. Next thing they told, you can be data scientists in the next three years. Come into the process and learn. So it's not all bad news, but it, is a, it requires an agile and quick response, and we're not seeing enough now we talk about the PPGI, yes. uh, something you're intimately involved with. Right. One of the processes on the public side is ESKIM, which seemingly everybody knows is overstaffed. There are a lot of people from ESKIM who are going to need to do something different. Again, Marius is saying, is there any way of turning them into entrepreneurs, into turning them into subcontractors, those who do leave ESKIM's full-time employer? 
Well, I think Eskimo and government are going to have to make a plan about, about it, which is very sensitive politically given our unemployment. But yes, I think people are beginning to think about what's the migration out. Some of them have technical skills, some are general workers, some are quite high level skills. How, how do we deal with that and can we absorb them? I think the entrepreneurial story is a little more complicated than we think. We think it's a bit like Omar and Soap. You pop the person in washing twice, out comes an entrepreneur. If you've been a lifelong employee, even a manager, it's very hard to become an entrepreneur. But they have had good experience and skills, and even though Eskim itself has been as an organization a mess, I think there are many good people there who, who Eskim don't actually need. And that kind of downsizing is going to open up elsewhere. Hopefully they'll get absorbed elsewhere, maybe retrained as part of the exit process. How did you become an entrepreneur? I don't think I am an entrepreneur. I may be a little entrepreneurial, because the core of it is the ability to see a gap that, that someone hasn't seen. And when we started Gibbs, many people thought there wasn't a, a gap. Uh, there was. There's always some kind of gap. And it's the acuity to see things that others don't see and then bring energy to it and then find your way along the journey. It's not an instinctive thing. I think it can be taught a little, but there has to be a nation, there has to be an attitude to it. Mike Bauer asks, why must Tito consult all members of the Alliance when very few have an understanding of how economics works? UJ did a, a study which showed only 14% of the ANC uh, parliamentarians know that. Surely a select group in the economics and finance portfolios would be sufficient. Well, that's what he's done, of course, and it's a very good document, very well researched, put together. It's a sort of tactical plan, if you like. It's not a grand strategy. But I think it's a very good document and I'm fully behind it. Um, one must consult because it's a democratic political process. The question is, uh, we've done enough of this now. It's time for action. And I'm hoping that this thing will, will come to action. And maybe we'll find that they just get on with it anyway. That there'll be opposition. There'll be lots of discussion. You know, Cassati rejected it before they got to page seven. I think that's an error. And uh, it's a pity. And I think our politicians are becoming, becoming a little less sensitive to that pressure. And the tension is very, very high at the moment about misimplementation has to be that way our president Alec also caught up with the African head of PwC Dion Shango who said Africa's rapid population growth could actually be positive in the short term Shango sees a big potential market the population of the African continent that will be living in urbanized areas will double by the year 2050 um, if you just apply your mind to that, that is an enormous amount of goods, services uh, and other requirements that will be needed by people in order to achieve that. So again, um, what type of investor would not be excited by the prospects and opportunities that that brings? Most certainly, um, population growth is an issue we all have to be concerned about over the long term. Um, the world is a limited place that can only handle so many of us and we need to be responsible in how we use up all of our natural resources. So certainly um, an issue to consider for the long term but perhaps not as serious as other parts of the world. So in the short term population is actually a good thing but Correct. let's not get too clever about exactly. it. <laughs> Oliver Kahn mentioned that for the last three years FDI into Africa has grown. Where are we, if you have a look at, the, at, at making it attractive for foreign fixed investment, and, and are there any particular areas that can be focused on to make it even better? Yeah. So historically, Alec, um, most of the investment has been tied to those very same natural resources that many countries on the continent have been so dependent and reliant on. 
but I think there are other sectors on the economy that provide great promise. I mentioned earlier during the press briefing the whole opportunity of agriculture and what that could mean in terms of unlocking future growth um, and value for the continent. I've got to ask you here, what about cannabis? It's, it's being legalized all over the world. Can't you start lobbying people to, to set, set grass free? <laughs> I'm sure that is something that will excite many. It could, be, it could be. It could be. We shouldn't lose the opportunity. So why not have the conversation? I agree. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It, 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 if the rest of the world is getting all excited about cannabis and you see how the stocks are going in, in North America, surely we're supposed to make the the best uh, the best uh, uh, in the world here in South Africa um, if it's exportable. Uh, as long as it, it plays, as long as countries play within the rules, as long as that is, it's adequately and appropriately regulated, I'm sure that could be another fantastic opportunity. But to how do you get people to start applying their minds to some opportunity like that? Uh, and, and from a PwC uh, perspective, you run PwC in Africa, you're a very powerful man. Um, how do you engage with people, uh, governments, to get that moving? Um, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a constant, never-ending process of engagement, Alec. Um, it's about being patient, and doing all that one can to bring together the private sector and government to make sure that there is an alignment of thinking in terms of planning, in terms of the objectives that investors have, um, and making sure that there's a meeting of minds in how we can help one another to grow and develop. I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that we all want the same things. Um, I have absolutely no doubt that politicians that run each of the governments on this continent want to see growth. They want to see poverty being eradicated in their countries. There is money circling the globe looking for a home, looking to uh, invest. Um, and so certainly in marrying those two needs, there is a way that I have no doubt we can, we can grow this continent. Uh, one last point. You've no doubt also had a look at Tito Mboweni's economic plan. Uh, do you have a, a house view? <laughs> we haven't created a house view yet. We have the a personal view. No, not a personal one either. What I am delighted about is the fact that there is a paper uh, that has been issued that is there to spark and encourage debate. Uh, and I think there should be a lot more focus on the content of the document. Um, most certainly there are many debatable aspects in the document itself about how we should be moving the economy forward. Um, but let's have the discussion and let's use it as a platform to actually see greater execution uh, and us working together to, to move the country forward. In the many corruption cases being probed in our country, the blatant lying by politicians and businessmen has prompted the question if they were psychopaths. Heidi Maibom, a professor of philosophy at the University of Cincinnati, says the business world should ask itself why are there so many people who are not psychopaths but are behaving like them? She says the focus on profit leads to psychotic behavior in businesses. Part of the reason that psychopaths can flourish within the business world is because the business world is psychopathic in a certain way, right? It's all focused on short-term prospects. It's, it's focused on doing good to the, to the shareholders and not caring about environmental impact, the people who work in the businesses or anything like that, right? That's all. Like if you look at the business almost like a human being, Modern businesses are kind of psychopathic structures, you know what I mean?
I've also uh, seen an article in Forbes saying that CEOs and business managers can do better if they do have more empathy. You need to be able to understand and relate to your employees and to care about what happens to them in order to have a good working environment. Otherwise, the people who are able to leave will leave, which means that you'll lose your most talented people. And, and you know, when I said that, that part of the problem with the business structure kind of being such that it's easier to harbor psychopaths, that, of course, is in certain areas, right? When it, come, when it comes to firing people, right? Psychopaths might be great at that, right? They take pleasure almost in doing it. And when it comes to focus on short-term profit and, and those kinds of things, right? But, of course, a longer term and overall, they are not useful, right? Because they, unless the people that are, you know, honest and upright are not going to go along and are not going to be manipulated as easily. Um, but it's also important to, to note that, you know, psychopaths stand up or, or care about themselves to such an almost exclusive extent that it's, it's a real liability for a business, right, to, to harbor psychopaths. But I think we should also not ignore the incentive structure that lies behind it. You know, without changing the incentive structure, there's going to be a limit to how much you can change the kinds of, shall we say, behaviors that people high up in the business world are going to engage in. See, my understanding is that actually the the, the change to uh, or the drive to make companies public right, so you have shareholders, is what have driven a lot of the ruthlessness, right, because now all of a sudden, you know, there's the quarter-term profits, which is all got to go up, 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 right, so short-term attention to these kinds of things, and then the exclusive concern with shareholders as opposed to employees or the environment that that the business is in, right. It's much easier for the kind of callous, unconcerned short-term thinking to flourish in business because of that culture, right, than it would be in other places. And also now I regret to say in politics, right, so the stories that I hear, for instance, about Ford and the early automobile industry in the United States seemed extremely nice, right, where they had, people had good jobs people who were working in the businesses were living in the neighborhoods with the people who were working in the businesses. So you didn't have this huge divide between rich and poor and a subsequent failure for the super rich to have any idea of what it's like to be an ordinary human being. You know what I mean? And then um, also much more money flowing into educations and to work, workers' benefit, etc., because they weren't beholden to this quarterly profit structure. Next week, Apple will be unveiling its new products for the year. They may not be the exciting events of the Steve Jobs era, but if you are a techie that likes new gadgets, this is always one to watch. Bloomberg's technology correspondent, Mark Gurman, gives us a bit of a preview on what to expect. And it seems great cameras is the buzzword on the new iPhones. 
So there's going to be the same three screen sizes, and the cameras will both be upgraded on, on both sets of phones. So right now, the 10R, as you know, has one camera on the back, and the 10S and 10S Max have two cameras on the back. The story this year will be two cameras on the successor to the 10R and three cameras on the back of both sizes of the high-end Pro Phone. When you add a second camera, it allows you to have optical zoom. Right now, if you're on a single camera, so the 10R today, when you go to zoom in and you go past the standard range of 1.0x zoom, it will get a little blurred because it's digital zoom versus physical zoom. But the more lenses you have, the farther you can go without degrading the quality. What you'll also get is improved portrait mode because you're actually getting multiple lenses working together to do that blur effect, and you'll get some additional stage lighting effects as well. Yeah, the AirPods, those are interesting. Everyone loves to talk about AirPods. So we got the original ones in 2016. Then there was the AirPods update in March with the new processor, the support for the Siri command. I don't want to say the wake word right now and have all my devices go off. Uh, <laughs> but they're also working on a new model. This is a higher end. I guess you can call it a pro model. Uh, it would be a little bit more expensive. It would have the wireless charging as well. But what you would also get is a sense of noise cancellation and some water resistance. And I think those are going to launch around the end of this year or next year. What we are going to get is a new sort of even proer MacBook Pro. So it's a bigger MacBook Pro. It's part of this approach to lock in professional users and retain them. This is going to have a over 16-inch screen, about 16 and a half inches, and I think that's going to be something that a lot of pro users are going to run to buy, and I, I hope it's not too expensive myself. And that has been the biggest stories of the week. Full coverage of the World Economic Forum in Africa and the other interviews we featured is available on the Biz News website.